0: Uh, Welcome to Real Life for the final time this quarter. And uh, if you've been coming around this quarter, you know that we've been marinating in the Gospel of Mark. And finally, we're going to land the plane tonight. We're going to look at the very end of Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to look at last eight verses um, in this Gospel. And uh, in a lot of ways, Mark ends his Gospel in the same way that he had begun. In the same way that he, at first he raises the question of who Jesus really is, he ends at the same place. And yet, the genius of Mark is is that at the end of the gospel, he leaves his readers, he leaves his audience with just two choices. You see, Jesus is either a dead prophet or he's a risen king. There is no other options left. And the way he's going to end it is also going to be pretty fantastic. He's going to leave it on a cliffhanger. And he's going to invite his community to participate. So let's read this passage together. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said, Nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. <clears throat> Well, Father, we enter into your presence uh, one more time tonight. Uh, And Lord, as the scriptures are open before us, uh, we invite invite your spirit to work in our hearts. Uh, Father, tonight, more than anything else, uh, we long to really know you. We long to really grasp and understand who your son Jesus really is. And I pray, Lord, that we're There is a need for conviction that you would bring that. Where is a longing for comfort? We pray that your scriptures will bring comfort. And in the midst of it, Lord, would you continue to shape us as a community into the kind of people that bring you glory and honor on this campus and beyond. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a pretty interesting passage. I mean, it starts out, we've got these three women that had just witnessed the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. And here they are. I mean, for all sense and purposes, like, you know, the gospel of Mark starts with, the, with his disciples dropping their nets. And these women have done that. They've dropped their nets. They follow Jesus. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact, I gave us a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. who says that a disciple burns his boat and moves forward. In the same way, these women have burned their boats. They followed Jesus to the point of no return. And here they are. They had seen Jesus die, and they're still sticking around. They're sticking around while all the dudes are gone. I mean, where is Peter? You know, Mr. Passionate himself. And you got to call Peter passionate because, you know, passion is this new Christian word. I mean, that's the biggest kind of a compliment you can give to any Christian today. It's kind of like a Christian version of Hollywood's word sexy. You know, she's so sexy in her yoga pants. So, where is this dude? You know, where is this Mr. Sexy Yoga Pants Passionate Peter? He's nowhere to be found. He's gone, he's in the hiding. You know, where is John? Mr. walking around claiming himself to be the one that Jesus had loved. You know, I just picture John being a, like the podcast junkie. I mean, he's got one worship song after another that are kind of a, talking about the cuddly, loving Jesus. Where is he? He's nowhere to be found. You know, where's Nathaniel, Mr. sitting under the fig tree, having long, quiet times, memorizing Mark Driscoll's doctrine book and binging himself on his spiritual stuff? Where is he? He's nowhere to be found either at least these women are sticking around because they're in it for good. But the question these texts raise is that what is that it that they are in for good? And the it that they are in is the embalming of the dead prophet. You see, their outlook, their spirituality, their faith at this point is about embalming a dead prophet. You see, as soon as as the sun dawns on Sabbath, they rush out and they get spices. And the first thing on Sunday morning, they're getting out there to embalm the corpse. For them, Christianity following Jesus is nothing other than attending to a dead prophet. You see, the reason why you embalm the body in ancient Near was for two different reasons. If you were in Egypt, you embalm the body to preserve it, to make it look good and authentic and looking alive. You see, in Israel, you use spices for different reasons. Because you see, when somebody died, there were two different burials that the body would go through. The first burial would be you would place the dead body in the tomb. And you would let it decompose. And once it had decomposed, there's only bones left, and you would collect them, and the body would experience the second burial. But see, in between the process of first burial and the second one, as the body is decomposing the tomb, they would bring in and place other bodies next to it. So this decomposing body would be reeking. So the reason why you embalm the body is to make it smell a little bit better. You see, at this point, for these women... Following Jesus implies being a part of a stinky man movement. And that's what they're doing. They're making a dead corpse smell a little bit less repulsive to the world around them. Unless we start making fun of these women, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Is that the picture of our faith and our Christianity at times? You see, in modern days it's been a common thing to talk about that many of us as christians are practical atheists i mean this is something that danish philosopher soren kierkegaard came up with and then now it's been popularized in christian circles by craig rochelle and others but the idea is that even though we follow jesus for all sense and purposes we live lives like atheists and i think that's slightly not correct You see, most of us would never deny Jesus, deny our faith. Most of us would give the same kind of admiration and same kind of a distant salute to Jesus as the commander-in-chief of our faith. So the problem for most of us in Christian circles is not that we become practical atheists. The problem is that we have become skilled undertakers. See, for many of us, Christian faith is, at its core, a corpse of a nice man who used to be a prophet, who said some great things, but by now, he has no effect. And many of us try to, do, try to work really hard to prop him up in certain ways to make him a little bit more presentable. And we call the thing apologetics, just trying to make Jesus a little bit more palatable the world around us. At times we embalm him in our worship sets that mask the fact that behind it loud sounds and pyrotechnics there is no substance. And how do we know? How do I know when those moments arrive? When I am no longer following the reason king but I'm really engaged in the process of embalming a dead prophet? There's two signs. And they're evident in the lives of these women at this point. First of all, is that the, when I face life, the weight of life hangs on my shoulders. You see, when these women are going up to embalm Jesus, the question that they're asking, "Who will roll away the stone?" Really, the question that they're asking is, do we have what it takes? To take care of Jesus. Do we have what it takes to make certain things in faith happen? You see, when we have a dead body at the center of our faith, there is nothing else left than to roll up our sleeves and put ourselves in a place where we have to make things happen. That's the biggest existential question that most of us will face in life. Do I have what it takes to face the life? And I know that. At the core of my being, I understand that. Most men my age, in our late 30s, when the lights are turned off, when nobody's around, that is the question that we'll wrestle with. You know those moments when, when this flood of fear comes over you and... And you're asking yourself a question. Do I have what it takes to take care of my family? Do I have what it takes? Do I have the skills, resources, and expertise to be able to manufacture life for myself and for my family? And that's the moment where I know that I'm embalming the dead body of my Savior. Because immediately I know what is at the core of my soul is fear. You know what the word is repeated here over and over again describing this woman? It's the word alarmed. They're alarmed. The Greek word there actually means that they're terrified. The Greek translation of the Old Testament called Septuagint uses this word in Psalm 48 to describe the attitude that Yahweh's enemies exhibit when he shows up on the scene. They're alarmed, they're terrified, and they're in panic, and they flee. And the text in verse 5 tells us that they're trembling as a woman in labor. You see, when you're following a dead Messiah, when your faith is nothing other than embalming the dead Jesus, you start to tremble when you look at the life, and at that moment, there's two paths that we take as human beings. It's the either path of despair or dogged determination. Larry Crabb puts it this way: He says, "Our most natural passion is to make life outside the Garden of Eden a little more like we imagine it." would be inside. We're more committed to making life work now than we are to finding God and living for a later hope. We naturally turn to God only to use Him to improve our present lives. Our agenda is to fix the world until it can properly take care of us. God's agenda is to bring things together in Christ until every knee bows before Him. Listen to those words again. Our agenda is to fix the world until it can properly take care of us. That is a proper description of a faith that, at its core, has a dead prophet, and where faith is nothing more than embalming the chorus. And yet, the wake up moment comes in for all of us the same way it does for these women. And it's wrapped up in just one word in the text. You see, they come face to face with these young men in a white leisure suit. And he looks at them and he says, do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus Christ who has been crucified. He's risen. The Greek actually there is a little bit funny. It sounds more like Yoda. Jesus Christ you seek. <laughs> but then he goes on. What kind of Jesus Christ are you looking for? The crucified one. But he's risen. You see, the thing is, you are looking, you're following, you're centering your life around the one who's dead. But I'm telling you something else. He is risen. And at this point, they no more understand what this guy means by saying that Jesus Christ is risen than most of us in the church do today. What he's talking about is is a picture that emerges in the book of Revelation chapter 1. Let me show you what it means that Jesus is risen. In verse 12, in chapter 1, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on the turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came the sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell to my feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. You see, what John does here, he just gives us image after image after image of what reason Jesus is really like. And I don't have time to go through every single one of them. But it's almost like that cascading wave that comes at us one after another after another. He tells us that he's dressed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. In essence, he's saying that he's the one who is dignified. This is what aristocrats did. The workers wore little shorter robes with a belt around their waist so they could tuck it in and run as fast as they could. But aristocrats didn't run. They walked around so their belts were sashes around their chest. He showed that they were dignified people. His hair is white. In ancient world, the white hair was a symbol of wisdom and dignity. We're told that he has feet of bronze and that his eyes are like fires. That's the same combination of images will be repeated when he talks about one of the churches, of the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And there those fiery eyes will symbolize that he can pierce into your soul and see what really goes on in there. But then we're told that in his right hand he's holding seven stars, which later on he's going to tell us that there are seven angels guarding these churches. See, stars in ancient world, there were powers, sometimes having divine powers to control destinies. And right hand was the symbol of power and strength. And he's saying this reason Jesus has the destinies of nations and peoples and towns in his right hand. Not only that, but he said that there is a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And it's the imagery that comes out of the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, where we're told the Messiah will rule the nations that his reign will dominate the entire known cosmos. Not only that, but we're told that his face is like shining sun. In Isaiah chapter 60, we're told that a day will come when the Lord will be the everlasting light for his people. You see, when we look at this picture, this is not a picture of some kind of a eschatological freak, some kind of a combination of Gandalf and, and Rambo. This is a picture of a sovereign king Who is so powerful, so mighty that he controls the destinies of nations. He rules over known world in wisdom and discernment. He has the capacity not only to rule but to look into every single heart and know what goes on there. He is the kind of one that the natural human response to this one is the same one what John exhibits here. Where he falls down to the ground as a dead man. So this is the one. This is the one that confronts these scared women and tells them, do not be alarmed, through the words of this dude in a white robe. He says, do not be alarmed. Why? Because wake up to the reality that you live in a world of tombstones that have been rolled away. That you no longer need to muster up your strength and your courage and work really hard to make things happen in life. You're living in a world that is dominated by the risen king. You see what Brandon Manning would say. He would say this to us. That the most radical demand of Christian faith lies in summoning the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Jesus. That living in a world of rolled away stones takes guts. That it takes courage to embrace this reality and say I will no longer live in a world of dead Messiahs. I will no longer live in a world where I need to spend my life embalming in some religious corpse. Because I'm living in a world of the risen king. And many of us, many of us come and face life with one, two, or three or four strikes against us. And we'll feel like life will never work out. That things are against us, the people are against us. And this is an invitation to the different world saying, you no longer need to live your life with clenched fists. Because there's somebody at home. Somebody is in control. And your life doesn't need to start from scratch. Your life is a derived life. Your life that gets its sustenance, its existence from the very life of this risen king. But not only we find ourselves immersed in the world of rolled away stones, but we find ourselves in a world of complete forgiveness. Because these women are told, go back and tell disciples and tell Peter. You see, Peter is thrown in here and in some Christian circles. This is taken as if as the role that eventually supposedly Peter is going to play in the church. There is not a shred of evidence of that in this gospel. Last time we saw Peter is him denying Jesus three times. And you've got to understand this. When Mark writes this gospel, guess who's standing behind Jesus or looking over his shoulder? It's none other than Peter himself. You see, Mark writes his gospel in Rome as he listens to Peter preaching. And Peter is probably looking over his shoulder and saying, Mark, don't make this look pretty. Tell him what I did. I denied Jesus three times. You see, you think you have blown it in your faith? You think you have blown in your life? Well, how about Peter? I mean, three times he looks at the reason Jesus. Three times he looks at the guy who holds the destinies of nations in his right hand and denies them. And this is the radical nature of grace. That at the most paradigmatic moment when Jesus is going to be revealed... As the risen Savior, he wants Peter there. He says, go and tell Peter that I will meet him in Galilee. And that's where he will see me, as who I really am, as the risen king. Paul Tillich puts it this way. He says, grace strikes us when we're in the greatest pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of meaninglessness and empty life. It strikes us when year after year the longed for perfection does not appear. When the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades. When despair destroys all joy and courage. It is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you. Do not seek anything. Do not perform anything. Simply accept the fact that you're accepted by Jesus. Does Peter know this? (laughs) You bet he does. And he wants Mark to put it down for people like you and I. That Jesus still wanted him, even at his lowest. And in it, there's a hope for you and I. Even in those dark, depressing moments where we feel like our life amounts to nothing. In those dark moments where we we feel like if anybody were to look deep into our souls, if somebody with fiery eyes were to peer into our psyche and into our soul and into our inner being, that would be repulsed. And it's at that moment we hear this. That just like Peter... He wants you and I there. And he tells his disciples to go to Galilee. You see, Galilee is where it all started. That's where you know, Nazareth is, the hub, the center of Jesus' mission. And in essence, Jesus is telling them, I've got the plan. I know what I'm doing. This is not an accident. The cross wasn't the divine oops. It was planned. And guess what? I told you about it. And I told you, when I would rise, just two chapters ago, I told you, this is going to happen. And then I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And now it's happening. And it's in the same way, it's an invitation for you and I to accept the fact that we'll live in a world of rolled away stones. We'll live in a world where there's a radical forgiveness offered to jacked up people like you and I. That there is a risen king. Who tells us, I've got the plan. Take the weight off of your shoulders. Get off the center stage. Stop clenching your fists. Stop trying to engineer life. And join me. What's the women's response? (laughs) They're alarmed. They're terrified. They flee. In silence. See at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus tells the man he heals, don't tell anybody. The guy runs out and tells everybody. Now he tells this woman, Go and tell them, and they're silent. Why does it end here? I mean, we have a few verses there, but if you look at most of your reliable, you know, my ESV ends it there with verse eight in that fear. And he tells me that there were some manuscripts that added more verses. But the oldest, most reliable manuscripts end the gospel right there. Is that an accident? I don't think so. It's almost like Mark in his genius closes his gospel on a cliffhanger. And he looks at his audience and he says, what are we going to do? How are we going to respond to this risen king? And the rest of the gospel becomes autobiographical for them. And for us. How are we going to respond. To the gospel of Mark. How are we going to respond. To Mark's challenge. That at the center of our faith. Stands the reasoned king. Who takes charge of the universe. And who claims. To have a plan for creation. Would we join him in. Or we insist on living out our faith where our energies are spent on embalming the corpse and in fear we try to engineer life apart from Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we... We come to you and, uh, Lord, I pray that tonight um, you would, in your grace, stretch our hearts. uh, That you would, in your grace, challenge us. And, Lord, if there are those of us here that they can relate to what I was talking about. That they are finding themselves in that moment where, uh, in fear and trepidation, they're spending their energies on embalming a dead corpse and uh, trying to engineer their own life. Uh, Lord, would You tonight challenge them to quit, to give up, to turn back to You, and experience Your forgiveness? That says You don't have to work hard. You don't have to try. You just need to rest in My love and My abundant care for you. And Lord, would You would You let them tonight experience a glimpse of Your grace and Your mercy and Your? Father, I pray that this will be true of us as individuals and this will be true of us as a movement. Lord, it will be a community that rests in you, that basks in your love, that is comforted by the fact that you hold the destinies of nations in your hand. That there is a double edged sword coming out of your mouth that rules the nations. is are cut up in-